All right, we can dismiss the children at this time for children's church kids up through third grade. And while the kids are leaving, I would invite you to open your Bibles or uh, get out your device, whatever you have your copy of God's Word on, and uh, open it to Philippians chapter 2 for this morning. Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to look at verses uh, 3 through 11. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2, we'll begin at verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he, but he emptied himself and taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> In the Santa Claus book, Santa has a conversation with the writer Alden Perks. Santa, you know I wouldn't want to meddle with your book, he said. I'm sure you'll know what's best to put in it, but, but there's one last thing I want you to say to the people of the world. If you would, put it at the very back of the book so people, people will remember it the most. I'd be happy to do whatever you ask, the author said. Well, here's what I want to say, Santa says. At Christmas time, people suddenly turn loving and unselfish. They start to share with others and they notice how happy it makes them. They give and give and don't really expect anything in return. Even nations get the Christmas spirit. More than once, Santa says, I've taken off on Christmas Eve a little worried about the guns and missiles I, I sh sh was sure to encounter, only to find that the warring nations had declared a Christmas truce. Santa then grasped his arm and spoke more earnestly, Tell the people that Christmas is the best time of the year. Oh, they know that. But why can't, we, why can't we make the whole year like that? Why can't we be loving and sharing all year round, even when others aren't loving and sharing back? I've said my piece, but tell the people that, please, please. Well, I think there really is a Christmas spirit. In spite of the reports of... Uh, parking lot rage at the malls and police needing to use pepper spray on shoppers waiting in line, there is more of a goodwill among people. People are often a little nicer and kinder. They're more apt to be generous. You know, who knows, maybe this was part of God's plan to bring a little more grace to the world. And, and you've probably thought what, what, what Santa was portrayed as saying, why can't Christmas, this spirit, last all year? Well, by definition, the spirit that we 
experience at the Christmas season cannot last all year. And the reason is our celebration of Christmas is in the tradition of what mankind has always had in all societies. And that is feast days and celebration. Ancient Israel had seven annual feasts. These celebrations and feasts are times when people come together in community to enjoy the labor of their hands and take a break from the difficult and harsh realities of life in the fallen world. It's almost like we take a break from the real world. And in the Jewish tradition, and now in our our Christian tradition, we remember and celebrate the great acts of God. And these times are refreshing for the soul. Unless, of course, the celebration is hijacked by other concerns. So by definition, feast days and celebrations cannot be the norm. Because whatever the norm is, they are designed to be different from the norm. But that is not to say that in our Christian celebration of Christmas, Christmas, there is nothing that we should not or cannot carry throughout the year. So what is it of Christmas that we are to carry with us and might impact the way we live? Well, the Apostle Paul employs the Christmas story in a very practical way. He uses the very act of the incarnation. The incarnation is that theological word that describes, you know, the second person of the Trinity taking on human flesh and coming to this earth. But he uses that as an example and model of how we are to live and relate to others. It's an example of selflessness and sacrificial love. Not just at Christmas, but as a way of life. So I'm entitling the message today, Modeling the Incarnation, from the passage that we read in Philippians chapter 2, where we see that the selflessness of Jesus Christ in becoming man is an example and model of the selflessness that God desires us to display in our lives. And we see this truth expressed in the carol that we sang, Thou didst leave thy throne. It's a carol that's really largely about the incarnation and the contrast of what Jesus experienced in heaven and what he experienced on earth. So this is the final message in our series in December, Advent series, Christmas series, called Christmas in Carols looking at some select Christmas carols and the biblical truth and passages upon which they are based. We've looked at Joy to the World, Psalm 98, What Child Is This, Matthew 1, and then We Three Kings last week in Matthew 2. And so today we're looking at Thou Didst Leave Thy Throne. Just a little bit about this carol. It was written by Emily Elizabeth Steele, first published in England, 1864, as a poem. And many of our hymns and carols start out as poems, and then later they're 
put to music, and such was the case with this. It was later put to music by Timothy Matthews. Now, about the context of our passage in Philippians. Where was Paul when he was writing Philippians? Well, he was in prison. But it was an imprisonment from which he would be released. It's not his final imprisonment that we encounter in Second Timothy, but it's his first Roman imprisonment that's recorded for us at the end of the book of Acts, and he was later to be released from that imprisonment. But he's writing to the church in Philippi to thank them for their support of him while he is in prison. This is one of the few letters in Paul in which he is not confronting some kind of major theological issue, that heresy or whatever that's going on in the church. He's writing to encourage them and in faithful living, and it's just, uh, just a wonderful little book, Philippians, four chapters. So, as we look at our passage today, I want to begin with verse 5, not verse, verse 3 where our passage begins, but we'll come back to that, but I want to begin at verse 5. And in this passage, Paul looks at the incarnation. We have incredible insight into the incarnation in this passage when the second person of the Trinity took on human flesh. And Paul presents this act, this incarnation, that selfless act of Christ as a model of the selflessness that we are to have in our lives. All right, let's begin to look at this, a model of selflessness in the incarnation First of all, we start with the mind of Christ. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The word for attitude here is a word that refers to the activity of the mind. It's used in several places in Paul's writing, and it's always talking about the way we think, as opposed simply to the way we feel. Think this way. Have this mind, have this mindset about you. And so he's telling us that this is the kind of mindset that we are to have. And so, and the idea here is that our lives are ultimately governed by the way we think. Our lives are ultimately governed by the way we think. The same word, Paul uses the same word in Colossians 3 where he says, set your mind on things above. Set your mind on those. Be focused on those. Think about those things, on things above. And here he says, have this attitude, have this mind in yourself. Set your mind on these things. And that is, which was also in Christ Jesus. Set your mind on acting the same way that Jesus did. Have this mindset to act the same way that Jesus did. And what was that? Well, Paul now looks at specifically the mind of Christ that he had in becoming a man. That's the mindset that he's talking about here. And this is Paul's story of Christmas. Paul doesn't talk about the Christmas event in terms of angels and and, and, and Joseph and Mary and shepherds and magi and, and stuff. 
he begins with Christ in eternity past. And so we look at the pre-existence of Christ in verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul is clearly stating here the eternal existence of Christ as God. When he says that he existed in the form of God, he's not speaking simply of his external appearance, but his essential nature. And that his essential nature was God. He had the appearance of God and the nature of God and and says he always was and he always forever in eternity past, existed this way. His eternal existence was that of God. And then Paul describes Christ's eternal existence, and this is profoundly significant, as equality with God. For all eternity, The second person of the Trinity was equal in essence and nature with the first person. Equality with God. He existed in that state of equality with God. So Christ shared the nature of God in the form and the manifestation of God eternally. But his point is that even though Christ shared this equality with God, he didn't consider it something to be grasped. That's what he's getting at here. That's what this passage, that's what this verse is about. He had that equality with God, but he didn't consider it something to be held on to. Held on to for his own sake. Christ shared in the equality of God in every way from eternity past, but was willing to lay it aside. And this is what we might say is the real inside workings of the Incarnation. I think this is the key phrase in this passage. Christ was not concerned for his own interests. He didn't act simply for his own needs or his agenda. He didn't grasp and hold on to what was his by right. What what he was owed. He didn't hold on to what belonged to him. What he deserved. The equality with God and all the glory that was part of that. That was his. That's what he was owed. That's what he deserves. But he didn't hold on to that for himself. And so this gives new meaning to the words of the song, Thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me. He left his throne in heaven and his place as being equal with God when he came to earth for us. He left it. And then in verse 7, Paul looks at the incarnation itself. He emptied himself taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. This is the Christmas story according to Paul. The incarnation begins when Christ emptied himself. What's involved in this? What does it mean precisely when it says that Christ emptied himself? 
Well, we must be very careful here. It is important to understand that Christ did not empty himself of his deity in any way. He did not become less God by becoming man. In becoming man, he remained fully God. Well, of what then did he empty himself? He emptied himself of the glory that he shared with God and as God from all eternity. The glory, the recognition, the praise, and the worship of the angelic host, all of that that was given to him as as the second person of the Trinity that had been ascribed to him from all eternity. That was... That is what he deserved. That is his right to be worshipped in that way. But he emptied himself of that glory, not his deity, but that glory by laying that glory aside. Jesus speaks of this in John 17. He says, Now, Father... Glorify me together with yourself. This is on the night before his death. He gathered with his disciples. He said, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory that I had with you before the world was. You see, he's anticipating now on the night before his death, going back to be with the Father. And he says, Now you can restore the glory to me that I once had, that I laid aside, of which I had emptied myself when I became man and came to earth. Now you can restore that glory to me when I return. But while he was here, he laid aside that glory that was due to him. So he didn't hold on to the glory that was his. Not only that, but he took on the form of a bondservant. I mean, you talk about going from the absolute highest to the lowest. He took on the role of a servant. Not just in title, but in reality. In his entire earthly life, he never had the role of a leader. But he was always a servant. It's important to keep in mind the contrast. He who shared in the glory of God for all eternity now took on the role of a servant from the highest to the lowest. And so we sing in that carol. But of lowly birth camest thou, Lord, on earth, and in great humility he took on the form of a servant. And Paul continues, and he was made in the likeness of men. He became fully human. Yes, he remained fully God, but he became fully human. And this... This is the mystery of the Incarnation. How that Jesus could be fully God and fully man. It's just a mystery. And by taking on a fully human body, He also took on the limitations of being human. He experienced physical exhaustion. He experienced hunger and thirst and pain. 
He didn't escape those things because he was the Son of God. He became fully human. And this is what is referred to in the carol. Heaven's arches rang when the angels sang, proclaiming thy royal degree. He came to earth as a man, being born of a woman. He wasn't transported here supernaturally and just appear. He was born of a woman in the most humbling of circumstances. And when he was born, the angels proclaimed his royal degree, not decree, but his royal degree, meaning his exalted position. The one who was born was one who was equal with God. That's the degree of that one lying in a manger. And now born as the Savior of the world. The angels proclaimed his royal degree. And Paul continues to emphasize all that the incarnation entailed. And so we look at the humiliation of Christ in verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You can see the stages here. You know, he didn't, did not consider equality with God a thing to be crass, humbled himself by becoming a man, became a servant, took on the form of a servant, and then, not only that, by becoming obedient to death, and not only that, even the death on a cross. The one who was fully God was clothed as one fully human. But that fact was not the ultimate purpose, just that God would take on human flesh. He humbled himself. He lowered himself even further as a man and became obedient to the point of death. He willingly submitted himself to the desires of evil men and endured their evil purposes that led him to death. He willingly submitted to the evil purposes of evil men. Imagine the eternal God willingly suffering abuse at the hands of these despicable people. But then Paul adds, even the death on a cross, not just any death, but the horrifically agonizing, shameful, humiliating death on a cross. Not the glory of a martyr's death, or the ease of a noble death of drinking hemlock, but the worst of imaginable deaths. And so we sing, Thou camest, O Lord, with the living word that should set thy people free. That's what he came for. Came as the living word, the word made flesh, the word that would set people free, but with mocking scorn and with crown of thorns, they bore thee to Calvary. He came obedient to the death on a cross. The one to whom all glory was due was treated with contempt and hatred by wicked men and put to, agonize, put to an agonizing death. So this is how Paul sees the birth of Christ, not with angels and shepherds, although those are not without great significance, but he sees it ultimately in the person of Christ who he was, who he is, what he did, 
and what he experienced. He sees it as Christ willingly laying aside his glory and the recognition and the honor that is due to him. And humbling himself to become a man, a lowly man, a servant, one scorned, ridiculed, and subjected to an agonizing death. And it is this attitude, mind, that we are called upon to model in our lives. Remember how the passage started? Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. And what's that attitude? That attitude of what we have just looked at and all that he experienced in the Incarnation. Well, the passage doesn't end there. We go on to verses 9 and 11 where we have the exaltation of Christ. God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Paul looks to the reward that God will bestow on him as a result of his faithfulness. God exalted him, raised him from the dead, received him back to heaven, and now with a name that has more honor and respect than any name on earth, That name is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And to him, one day all people and all created intelligences shall bow and all creation will give glory to him. And our carol picks up on this theme as well. When heaven's arches shall ring and her choirs shall sing at thy coming to victory, let thy voice call me up saying, yes, there is room There's room at my side for thee when Christ is exalted. Well, we see in this passage the spirit of the incarnation. You see how Paul uses the incarnation? He doesn't present this simply as theological information. These are facts you need to know. He presents it in a way that says, this is the fact, now this is how it should impact us. You see, the Gospels and the accounts of Jesus' life and death and and his birth give us the historical account of the birth of Jesus. We're familiar with that story. It's a cherished and beloved story. Angels and Joseph and Mary and Bethlehem. But Paul sees something different in, let's call the process of the incarnation. He puts the historical event into a broader theological context. He puts the event of the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, into the context of the eternal existence of Jesus and contrasts the two, the glory that was His for eternity and the humiliation and the death that was His. And Paul sees all that Christ gave up and experienced And he sees that not just as a theological abstraction, but as a model, an example of what our attitude and behavior should be. The attitude that Christ had in laying aside all that was rightfully his in order to serve us says, Paul says, is to be the attitude, the mindset that we are to have. 
This is how the incarnation is to impact us. This is the spirit of the incarnation. He is the quintessential example of one who did not act from selfishness or empty conceit. He's the quintessential example of one who with humility regarded others as more important than himself. And Paul calls us to act toward others in our lives in a similar way. And, And this is the spirit of the incarnation. Now, What might that look like if we really took this seriously? What might it look like in in the context of our relationships? Well, Paul provides us with a description of this kind of life in verses 3 and 4. I told you we'd come back to it. Let's read those verses again now. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is his instruction, this is his exhortation to the church at Philippi, and this is his exhortation, God's exhortation to us today. It is a call to uncommon, but everyday selflessness and service. Don't be selfish. Don't live as if the world and everyone else just revolves around you. Don't be concerned just about your own wants and needs and desires and rights. But with true concern for others around you and those in need, wherever they may be, as more important than yourself. Don't be driven simply by your agenda, but rather consider the needs of others. And you know, this flies in the face of our natural inclination. It's countercultural because everything in our culture tells us that we are the most important person. You deserve this. But how radical is this? We are so used to wanting our own way and getting upset if we don't get it. But this, this can be life-changing. If we took just this one command in Scripture, seriously. Just this one. It could change families. It could radically change marriages and churches and friendships. You might say, well, if I did that, I'd never get anything I wanted. Well, Jesus gave it up. 
but he was ultimately rewarded. And if we give up our rights to follow the example of Christ, then God will reward us in much more meaningful ways than we otherwise would have had. I believe that this is some of the most profound instruction, straightforward and simple to understand in all of Scripture. It's not a matter of understanding what he's saying. It's just a matter of, are we going to obey it? This is some of the most practical, relationship-changing kind of behavior. Just think, if we truly did seek to live this way in all of our relationships, how transforming that would be. Think about these words. Let them sink in as we read them one more time. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is the spirit of Christmas, the spirit of the incarnation that we are to carry forward into the new year. This is how we model the incarnation. Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There is room in my heart for Thee. Let the Spirit of Christ change your heart beginning today. Let's pray. Thank you again, Father, for Your Word that You've given to us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that is within us and among us. And we pray that he will do his work in making clear the truth of your word to our lives. Not just with understanding, Lord, but where it really speaks to each of us. Lord, we pray that you might be pleased to change our hearts to change our lives, to be in some measure more in accord with the truth of your word of what we've seen in this passage to put others before our own personal interests. Put the needs of others before our rights, before our wants, before our own agendas. Lord, I pray the Spirit of God would be pleased to use the truth of this word to change us today. Begin a change today that will continue with us, not just through this season, but into a new season of life, into the new year. May you do real change in our hearts through your word. In Jesus' name. Amen.